0: Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering and the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Mark explains how his suffering prompted him to depend more on God, and then discusses with KJ whether some of our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount suggest it is misleading to talk about Christian flourishing in this life. Let's listen in.
1: Well, Mark, when we signed off last time, you were saying that we'd open this episode uh, with a continuation of our discussion of the first way that suffering is good for us in tempering our happiness. You added, somewhat provocatively, I might add, that you think this means we shouldn't talk, as, as a lot of American evangelical Christians do nowadays, that, about Christian flourishing. That does seem to be popular. So let's start with these two topics.
2: You'll remember, KJ, that I quoted C.S. Lewis, who said that the Christian doctrine of suffering explains a very curious fact about the world we live in. Mm-hmm. The settled happiness and security that we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the way that the world now is. Genesis 3 clarifies that God has actually made life harder for us now. Right. After the fall, he removed the possibility of our getting settled happiness and security in this life. Now, that seems intolerable until we realize that when our lives are going really smoothly, it's awfully easy to forget that we are sinners who are dependent on God for everything. Right. We need to remember that sin, and that even original sin, blinds. Consequently, we never feel life's greatest tragedy adequately. The tragedy of the fact that from the fall onwards, Human beings have lost communion with God. It has to be restored after the fall. Yet insecurity and suffering help us to remember that. They strike near enough to the center of our hearts to keep us from being too contented with life now. The suffering and uncertainty that our lives now inevitably involve can have the positive effect of driving us back towards dependence on and ultimately communion with God.
1: Okay, that's interesting, it's a bit counterintuitive. How how does this work?
2: Well, I can illustrate it in my own life. After the recreational accident that I had when I was 17 that left my legs partly paralyzed, all sorts of things could go wrong and embarrass me. And among them was whether I might wet or mess myself. I went back to finish my final term in high school about nine months after my accident. I had only to attend two classes, but of course, during those couple of hours, something could go wrong. So I found myself constantly praying that God would protect me from embarrassing incidents. When I went to college just a few months later, I had to be out in public a lot more. It wasn't just that I needed to go to classes and meals. There were lots of students who apparently thought that because I had a lot to struggle with, I was walking very awkwardly at the time with canes or forearm crutches and sweating profusely Mm -hmm. as I walked. There were just a lot of students who apparently thought that because I had a lot to struggle with, I would be concerned about them. Mm -hmm. And so they flocked to me wanting to share their struggles with me. So I often found myself needing to be out and about, even when I felt it would be safer to stay in my dorm room. Yet, I felt that God was calling me to show his love to these students, and so I'd venture out, praying that he would help me keep my bladder and bowels under control. Now, he almost always did, and so I found myself not merely dependent on him, but also immensely grateful to him. And both the dependence and the gratitude kept me close to him. I was almost constantly asking him for protection and then thanking him for giving it. That, along with a lot of Bible reading, brought me into and kept me in communion with him. And while today the bladder and bowel issues are pretty much resolved, still various issues with being a partial paraplegic constantly crop up and thus keep me close to him. As I wrote in a, in closing a short piece on my disability for my college student newspaper in my junior year, I found then, and I still find now, that the pain of infirmity cannot begin to touch the joy of closeness to him.
1: Wow. Th- thanks for sharing. I, I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. I mean, it's it seems like it's one thing to struggle with the more obvious challenges of just getting around with your with your partial paralysis, but it seems like it's the other challenges that help you cultivate this dependence on God,
2: isn't it? I, I think I think that's exactly right. Late in his life, when he and many of those he knew were weak or infirm or suffering in various ways, C. S. Lewis observed that Christians should live in cheerful insecurity. Mm. That, he said, is one of the simplest and earliest Christian lessons, but one, he said, that we usually learn only late in surprise. Oh, wow. That's, that's good. So that leads me to the topic of Christian flourishing. If anybody doubts that that's a popular topic, then all they need to do is go to Amazon and type in Christian flourishing. Mm-hmm. Lots of books come up. There are even books that link Christian flourishing with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount which we're going to see is in some ways particularly ironical. Now, my issue, KJ, with Christian flourishing is that the word flourishing almost inevitably raises unreal expectations. The term is just too loaded. Hmm. If you look up the word flourish in the Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary Online, you'll find, among others, these two definitions. To grow luxuriantly... To increase and enlarge, in other words, to thrive, and to be prosperous, increase in wealth, honor, comfort, happiness, or whatever is desirable, in other words, to prosper, and to reach a height of development or influence. Okay. Health and wealth preachers often claim that God wants to prosper his children, that in fact, his children can increase in wealth, honor, comfort, happiness, to quote from Merriam-Webster, or whatever they desire. Mm. The claim of these health and wealth preachers is more or less that God will give us the desires of our hearts no matter what we want. Okay. Now, more thoughtful Christians often qualify the phrase Christian flourishing by adding a word like true, true Christian flourishing they then clarify that true Christian flourishing isn't a matter of getting whatever you want. It's getting the kind of life that God means for us as Christians to enjoy as we obey him and his precepts. I appreciate the care with which these more thoughtful Christians are attempting to fence the idea of Christian flourishing. But words are stubborn things. They don't just mean what we want them to mean. The usual connotations of the word flourishing, as it's used in our society, aren't easily scrubbed off it. I think that most of us even those of us who have thought about this, most of us who are Christians, when we hear the word "flourishing," still picture ourselves prospering in some temporal, earthly way.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I, 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 this is a bit new to me, and I confess I haven't really thought that deeply, and I found that this this language has been attractive to me in my own trying to discuss what it means to live a, a fruitful. Christian discipleship life. Uh, mm-hmm. and I even use this language myself, um, but you're right. Words are words and concepts are stubborn because they can represent things and they can get out of control despite the qualifiers. And we can kind of just cling to an idea instead of the actual words, even if we if we dress them up with qualifiers.
2: What I like of what you said there, KJ, is that uh, we might talk instead about a fruitful Christian life. Seems to me that that's completely unobjectionable, yeah. but that's quite different than a, a flourishing Christian life. Okay. What God, I think, actually offers us is not flourishing, but blessedness. Mm. So think about the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as it's found in Matthew. Jesus opens by giving his disciples what are called the Beatitudes, each of which starts with the Greek word makarioi, which means to be blessed, fortunate, or happy. The Beatitudes include these declarations by our Lord. These are just three out of the eight I think there are. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, in other words, slander you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, mourning, being persecuted, and being slandered don't naturally come to mind as descriptions of flourishing.
1: No, not at all.
2: Look at the grammatical construction of the Beatitudes. Okay. Each state that is called blessed in the antecedent of each statement, each state that is called blessed is followed in the consequent by a for or because indicating a future state. Hmm. What that means is, is that mourning, being persecuted, and being slandered can be taken to qualify those who are experiencing them for a future and quite different kind of state. So the, what shall we say, the negative states qualify uh, the disciples of Christ who are uh, experiencing them for a future and quite different kind of state, a positive state. The future states, which the last of these three Beatitudes states explicitly will be uh, the disciples in heaven, they'll only get them in heaven, are rewards for what his disciples have been willing to suffer through. So these Beatitudes seem to imply that on any plausible interpretation of what it means to flourish, those who are blessed are not flourishing now, although they will flourish in the future, in heaven, in the eschaton, when our Lord returns to bring about the consummation of all things.
1: Okay, I think I'm following.
2: This, it seems to me, and only this interpretation of Christian flourishing as something we will experience when our Lord returns, only this interpretation, it seems to me, seems consistent with other New Testament claims, such as our Lord declaring, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Paul's writing that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But that focus on the still unrealized future isn't what talk about Christian flourishing usually conveys. No, no. The key word for Christian life right now is that we must endure rather than flourish. We'll flourish later, we endure now.
1: That's a good distinction. Um, you're, you're really talking my language here because uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, hard to say my favorite passage, but definitely one of my favorite passages in all scripture. I camped out on it for over a year. Uh, seven months of which I was in Afghanistan, and it really was a a life-giving passage for me. And this this picture of flourishing as a future blessedness, really, uh, to tie it back to our prior conversations, it really coheres with the general storyline of Scripture that we've been examining, and it really does now help reframe at least my understanding of flourishing. I'm sure it does with the listeners as well.
2: Let me make one more point about the Beatitudes. Okay. Occasionally, in an attempt, I think, to help people understand what the Beatitudes mean, makarioi will be translated as happy. For instance, the Bible in basic English does this. It says, happy are those who are sad, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are attacked on account of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven will be theirs. Happy are you when men give you a bad name and are cruel to you, and say all evil things against you falsely because of me. Be glad and full of joy, for great is your reward in heaven, for so were the prophets attacked who were before you. So there are are translations that use happy here instead of blessed. Yet, if you survey most English Bibles, you'll find that substituting happy for blessed, both in the Beatitudes and elsewhere, is pretty rare. I think that's because translators usually are aware of just how stubborn words are. People may say they are happy or even feel really happy for a lot of different reasons, many of which aren't the result of anything like being reconciled with God. For instance, here's a horrible example. But for instance, a teenage boy may be happy because he's found a, a girl who allows him to mess around with her.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm, I'm tempted to make a don't worry, be happy joke here, but I'll, I'll hold <laughs> back. Um, instead, let me, let me ask, how, how would you respond to someone who's still really attached to this notion of Christian flourishing? Because it can be really attractive. Um, so somebody who's really attached to this and wants to make the point that suffering doesn't encompass all of the Christian life, how, how would you respond to that?
2: Well, I'd say, of course, suffering doesn't encompass all of life. I am not suggesting that our lives now won't include joy and laughter. We saw that last week with what C.S. Lewis said. As anybody anybody will tell you who knows me, I laugh a lot. And as we've Mm -hmm. seen Lewis to make clear, God will refresh us with much that is good in this life. But Lewis wants to say, he won't give us security and settled happiness. As Lewis observed, here we are to live in cheerful insecurity. We'll get true security and settled happiness in the eschaton when our Lord returns. Mm. We will flourish then rather than now. I think I'd say to people who would like to maintain, who, who would like to continue saying that it's useful to talk about Christian flourishing, I think I'd say to them, we need to trust our translators here. Okay. So, in fact, here's what I'd suggest for them if they want to talk about Christian flourishing. And, in fact, I think this is true even for those who try to fence its meaning by adding a word such as true, true Christian flourishing. Now, I'm going to get pretty deeply into the weeds here in order to make this point about Christian flourishing. But our listeners, I hope, won't abandon ship because of that, since I hope they know that at one point, the Apostle Peter says that the Apostle Paul's writings uh, contain some things that are difficult to understand. Mm. Uh, What I'm going to say isn't so much difficult as detailed. Sometimes God requires us to concentrate in order to understand his word adequately.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, even Paul challenged the Corinthians to um, feed only on. He challenged them regarding feeding only on milk rather than on instead of meat. Um, and we all need to challenge ourselves to go beyond simple Bible application principles and self help theology. Sort of like you know you're talking about going to the bookstore and finding what's on the Christian bookshelves. So uh,
2: I'm I'm with you. Let's get into the weeds. Here's my advice then to those who find talk about Christian flourishing attractive. Type flourish or flourishing into a good Bible search program and see how often it comes up. Mm. How often do translators find it to be the appropriate word for describing what is true of God's people in this life? I've checked about 10 English translations. And the words flourish and flourishing are quite rare. English Bible translators almost always restrict the use of those words to the Old Testament. For instance, flourish and flourishing appear 15 times in the English Standard Bible, all of them in the Old Testament, 23 times in the New International Version, all but one in the Old Testament, and 28 times in the New Living Translation, All but two in the Old Testament. In the ESV, when flourish or flourishing are used in the Old Testament, they're used to describe what is true of God's Old Testament people in this life only about five times out of the 15. Several times, they refer to the fact that the wicked may flourish now, but not later. For instance, Psalm, Psalm 92.7 reads, Though the wicked sprout as grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. In other words, the situation for the wicked is opposite the situation for the righteous. The wicked flourish now, not later, and the righteous don't flourish now, but will flourish later. Corroborating this, we find that at least three times in the Old Testament, as in the Beatitudes, flourishing is used explicitly to state that God's people will, in the future, flourish rather than now. The NIV's single use of flourish in the New Testament comes at Acts 12.24. It refers to God's word rather than to Christian believers. Here's the way it reads. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Flourish there simply means to multiply, to go out to more and more people. One use of flourishing in the New Living Translation refers to the Thessalonians' faith flourishing. Here's the way it reads. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. But for Paul to observe that their faith is flourishing isn't equivalent to his saying that they in their earthly lives are flourishing. And that's made clear in the next three verses of that very letter where Paul says, We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and faithfulness in all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. At the time of Paul's writing... The Thessalonians were suffering rather than flourishing, but that's something he assures them God will rectify in the end. Now, the other use in the New Living Translation refers to the wicked flourishing. It reads like this, but evil people and impostors will flourish. But if I can be so bold, I think that's actually a mistranslation since the Greek word that the New Living Translation translates as flourish is actually one that is better translated in terms of these evildoers and imposters going from bad to worse. They aren't flourishing, they're going from bad to worse. And both the ESV and the NIV translate it that way. So, why are the words flourish and flourishing sometimes appropriately applied to God's Old Testament people, but not to his New Testament people? That's the really important question. It's because those words pick up on an aspect of Old Testament life that has no parallel in New Testament times. In the Old Testament era, God encouraged his people to test his promise to bless their obedience because their flourishing would then witness to the surrounding nations of the power and goodness of their God. If they obeyed, then God would bless them tangibly in this world for that obedience, and that would make Israel a light to the nations.
1: Oh, this, this is helpful, and I'm having one of those moments now where this this has always been in the text, and I can see it clearly, but I wonder why I have not seen this before. Um, <laughs> You're, this is helpful to see it this way, but so draw this out into the New Testament for us. Is what yeah,
2: I'm yeah. In the New Testament, we as God's people are no longer a separate nation. Mm. We are to be salt and light scattered throughout the nations. We witness to those surrounding us by our willingness to suffer for proclaiming our crucified Lord's bodily resurrection. And if we proclaim that, we will suffer. People will jeer us. They will avoid us. They'll do all sorts of things. So the New Testament contains no promise similar to God's promise to his Old Testament people. In this New Testament era, we are blessed, as in fact is said in Luke 6.22, when people hate us and when they exclude us and revile us and they spurn Christ's name as evil on account of his being the son of man. Mm. Like the Old Testament saints commended in Hebrews 11, we know that this world is not our home. No. No. We're to be like Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than, than the treasures of Egypt. Think of what he gave up. He really could have flourished if he wanted to, oh, but okay. he considered the treasures of uh, that the reproach of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And he did that because he was looking ahead to his final otherworldly reward. Here, as Hebrews says, we have no lasting city. Here, if we would follow our Lord, we must deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily. Here, paradoxically, if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed because our mistreatment shows that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us, as Peter says in his first letter at 414. As you said, KJ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer captured what Christian discipleship means when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So, because words are stubborn things, I conclude that to talk about Christian flourishing in this life, even if we try to qualify it with a word like true, Mm -hmm. to talk about Christian flourishing in this life almost inevitably raises inappropriate expectations. If we buy into that language, we may be tempted to think that we're doing something wrong if we're ill-received by the world around us, because it seems we aren't flourishing. Yeah, And so what I'd suggest we do is just avoid that talk about Christian flourishing. I think we'd do better, actually, to use the term that you used earlier in this episode, KJ, that uh, the issue is how can we live fruitful Christian lives?
1: Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm experiencing one of those paradigm shift moments right here, and, and we just covered a lot of ground. So let's see. Let me see if I'm tracking. Um, you said through a detailed word study that flourish and its cognates are not all all that common in Scripture, meaning that this is not a prevalent biblical theme. Right. In fact, the use of these words isn't found in even in the New Testament. They're replaced right. by themes that more involves self-denial and suffering. And in fact, the concept of blessedness, especially future blessedness, is more biblical than the concept of flourishing and counterintuitively, we're blessed when we suffer. Am I, am I tracking? Am I,
2: getting, am I following? I think that's right. It means that we don't uh, uh, try to suffer. Uh, suffering will come our way just in our living as Christian <laughs> witnesses. But I think that that's right, that counterintuitively in the New Testament, we're blessed when we suffer. And it seems to me that in having covered that, and having probably strained our readers by the amount of detailed exposition we gave here of where flourish flourish and flourish and show up in the Old Testament, uh, this is probably more than enough for our (laughs) listeners to chew on this time, KJ. You left me hungry in one episode and you filled me in another. How about that? <laughs> Next time, we'll explore the second way in which suffering affects us by disrupting our lives and disorienting us. I look forward to it. Thanks, KJ.
0: Taking a closer look at the idea of human flourishing, Mark reminds us that words can be stubborn, and even with care and nuance, the idea of Christian flourishing can often leave us with inappropriate expectations. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't offer us flourishing, but rather blessedness. In Matthew 5 and elsewhere in Scripture, we flourish only after our Lord has returned. Now we endure. We should be like Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ to be better than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his final heavenly reward. On earth we have no lasting city. Here we must take up our crosses and follow him daily. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear.